pleasure to be with you here this morning. Uh, I'm glad Cammie pointed out the, the fact that I was Jack Mumon, not David Lyle. I would hope for somebody who knew here today that might confuse the two of us, uh, apart from the fact that he's considerably taller than me and considerably thinner than me, and, and I'm considerably grayer than him. You, you might mistake us for each other. But David is in Alabama this morning, and he asked me to fill in, and those are uh, in more than one way big shoes to fill. <laughs> but uh, as he asked me a month or so ago, I, my first response, my first reaction was, I, I thought you were trying to get people to come to Four Mile, not to run out the door. And uh, so I hope that's not the case this morning. But as some of you who know me, I have recently retired. And as that day got closer and closer, I began to pray, God, how would you use me in Four Mile with the extra time that I'm going to have on my hands? And... Uh, I've been praying that for a couple of weeks, and all of a sudden, I got one of those ding notifications on my phone, and I looked, and it was a, a, a text message from David, and he said, uh, hey, why don't we get together and have lunch? And uh, by the end of that conversation and our time together, he had penciled me in for this morning, and the moral of this story is be careful what you pray for. <laughs> uh, and, but that is, that's my prayer for every one of you here this morning, that you are actively praying, God, how can you use me to be more involved in the ministry of the gospel here at Four Mile? And if you're not praying that, you need to start praying that. Uh, enough of that. Uh, if you would, take your Bibles, please, and open to the Gospel of John chapter 14. The passage that we're looking at this morning is found in verses, as Cammie read, 18 through 20. And uh, before I get into those verses, let me pray again real quickly. Father, we are here this morning as two groups of people. Father, people who have been redeemed and people who need to be redeemed by your grace and by your Savior. And we thank you for him this morning, and my prayer is that you would speak to each of us individually, that we might hear what you have to say to us, and Father, that we would take it and leave this morning, and our lives would be changed. Uh, just by way of a little bit of background with regard to chapter 14, verses 18 to 20, this is contained in a larger section of the Gospel of John known as the Upper Room Discourse. It extends from chapter 13 all the way through chapter 17. Almost 25% of the Gospel of John is given in this episode to the life of Jesus. Here we find Jesus gathered together with his disciples to celebrate the Jewish festival of Pentecost. And during the course of the meal... He takes the opportunity to teach his disciples about a whole array of different significant events that are about to occur, to occur within the next several days and weeks. In fact, in this section of John's gospel, Jesus relates such things as Peter's denial, Judas's betrayal, the coming of the Spirit to indwell believers, his own death, burial, and resurrection, some pretty weighty stuff. And as the evening goes on, the disciples 
are beginning to, to feel a little uncomfortable, a little uncertain about the relationship with Jesus. As Jesus talks about returning to the Father, all sorts of questions begin to pop up in their heads. We have no idea where you are going. How can we know the way? Just show us the Father and we will be content. And, and my personal favorite, what has happened that you are going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world. In these three short verses, verses 18 to 20, Jesus is going to set their uncertainty aside. Their fears and their doubts are going to be dealt with with regard to their future relationship. In verses 18 through 20, Jesus is going to assure his disciples that their relationship, no matter what, is permanent it is life-giving, and it is eternally secure because they are in Him. I'm going to read the passage again real quickly, beginning in verse 18. Jesus says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me, and I am in you. There are three biblical principles that I want us to take away this morning from this passage. One, Christ assures his followers that their relationship is permanent. We find that in verse 18 in the beginning of verse 19. Two, Christ assures his followers that their relationship results in life. We see that at the end of verse 19. And three, Christ assures his followers that their relationship to him is secure because they have a bond with him that cannot be broken. And we'll see that in verse 20. Christ assures his followers that their relationship is permanent. Jesus says, I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. Notice the certainty of both of those statements. I will not, I will. Even though Jesus is returning to the Father, he wants his disciples to understand that does not mean the end of their relationship. And he uses the example of orphan to illustrate his truth. To abandon you as orphan implies leaving them behind, leaving them helpless on their own to care for themselves like a parent abandoning a child. In fact, earlier in John chapter 13, verse 33, Jesus calls them just that. He calls them his children. But unlike the world, he has no intention of leaving them helpless. According to UNICEF, which is a UN organization, there are approximately, and this is an astounding number, there are approximately 153 million orphans in the world today. That's almost half the population of the United States. Every day, 5,300 children are left helpless, abandoned due to various reasons, either war or disease or poverty, and sometimes simply because the people who brought them into the world don't want them anymore. If my math is correct, somewhere in the range of 240 children will be abandoned during the hour that we are gathered here this morning. By definition, they have no one to care for them, no one to give them direction, no one to comfort them or protect them, no one to see that they are fed at night or cared for in the morning. 
They have been left helpless. But Jesus says about his children, I will not abandon you. I will not leave you helpless. What I find interesting is that in just a few short hours, Jesus, excuse me, in just a few short hours, the disciples are going to do to Jesus what he said he would never do to them. In Mark chapter 14, verses 49 and 50, the evening has progressed. Jesus has gone with the disciples out into the Garden of Gethsemane, and the crowd has come to arrest them. And this is what Mark says, and this is Jesus speaking. Day after day, I was with you teaching in the temple courts, yet you did not arrest me. But this has happened so that the scriptures will be fulfilled. And verse 50 says, then all the disciples left him and fled. It's the same word that Jesus uses in John 14. They have abandoned him. If you forgive me, if I get a little personal, I wonder how often do we abandon Jesus? How many times when we have had the opportunity to stand up for Christ, either at work or at home or with our family, or to be more involved here at the church, we, like the disciples, have turned and fled. Jesus does not abandon his people, even in the most difficult circumstances. Neither should his people abandon him. On the one hand, he says, I will. And on the other hand, he says, excuse me, on the one hand, he says, I will not. And on the other hand, he says, I will. I will not abandon you as orphans. I will come to you. The question is, what does it mean when Jesus says, I will come to you? When you first read it, it seems simple enough. I will come to you. But people who write commentaries on the Gospel of John are all over the place with regard to what it means. Some say he is talking about appearing to the disciples following his resurrection. Some say he is talking about sending the Holy Spirit to indwell his people. And we see that earlier in the chapter. Some see it as referring to Acts chapter 1 and the sending of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost that Cammy has already mentioned for us. Churches around the world are celebrating the sending of the Holy Spirit into the lives of Christ's people in the early church today. Others still see the phrase, I will come to you, as relating to Christ's second coming, his return at the end of the age to be with his people. One writer says it means all of them at one point or another. I'm going to cut to the chase, so to speak, and without explaining all the different views, uh, I'm going to primarily say that Jesus is talking about coming to his people following his resurrection what people call his post-resurrection appearances. Notice that I said primarily because I'm hedging my bets here. I get this from the beginning of verse 19. Yet, I w- in a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me after the resurrection. Remember the question the one disciple asked Jesus, Lord, what has happened that you are going to reveal yourself to us and not to the world? It's not about what has happened, it's about what's going to happen. I think we need to keep in mind where Jesus is, what he is doing, and who he is talking to. In that one phrase, yet in a little while the world will see me no more, Jesus encapsulates everything that is about to happen in the next 24 hours. 
his betrayal, his arrest, his trial, torture, crucifixion, and burial are all summed up in the first half of verse 19. The world, and by the world I take it to mean all who reject him, saw Christ right up until the time that the stone rolled in front of the tomb. When that stone rolled across the face of the tomb, the world literally saw him no more. As far as they were concerned, that was the end of the story. There are no instances in the Gospels of Jesus ever appearing following the resurrection to anyone other than to those who believed in him. The world, those who reject Christ, never saw him then. And still to this day, they fail to see, they fail to understand who Jesus is. The interesting thing about the word see in that verse is it can be taken a couple of different ways. It can be taken literally and it can be taken figuratively. Literally, the, were, the world never saw the resurrected Christ. Figuratively, or perhaps better spiritually, they didn't see or understand who Jesus was, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And that is what I like to think of as an aha moment. Have you ever been in a discussion with somebody talking about something and they're not quite sure what you're talking about? They're just not getting your point. And then to some place in the conversation, the light goes on and they say, oh, now I get it. Now I see. Now I understand. The world has never had that kind of a moment when it comes to Jesus Christ. The unbelieving world never had it then, and it still doesn't have it today. Those who reject Christ today are just as blind, just as unable to see who Christ is as those responsible for his crucifixion. In chapter 2, or excuse me, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul says this, But even if our gospel is veiled... It is veiled only to those who are perishing, among whom the God of this age has blinded the minds of those who do not believe, so they would not see the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan, the God of this world, blinds the mind so that people don't believe, and as a result, as the Apostle Paul puts it, they would not see the light. For the unbelieving world, there is no aha moment when it comes to Christ. And that brings us to the little word at the middle of that verse, but. But signifies contrast. And the contrast here could not be more stark. Jesus says that the world will not see him, but he says that the disciples will. The world couldn't or wouldn't see him. But the disciples are assured that they will. The word see can again be taken both understood literally and spiritually. Beginning with the women at the tomb on Easter morning, the final chapters of the Gospels are sprinkled with post-resurrection appearances of Christ. Later in the Gospel of John, Jesus appears to Peter and some of the other apostles at the end of Luke, to two disciples while walking on the road to Emmaus. In Matthew, to the disciples gathered in conjunction with the Great Commission. In all, there are in the neighborhood 
11 physical appearances of Jesus to his followers after the resurrection and before his ascension. In Acts chapter 10, verses 40 and 41, Peter says this, but God raised him up on the third day and caused him to be seen. And then he says this, not by all the people, but by us, the witnesses God had already chosen. And I think that word chosen fits in really well with what David has been talking about in previous sermons. The witnesses God had already chosen who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Jesus said to his disciples, yet you will see me. And they did. But what about the aha moment? Are there any disciples who seeing the risen Christ come to a deeper, perhaps fuller, clearer understanding of who Jesus is? And there are. One such person is the Apostle Thomas. Jesus had appeared to some of the disciples, and for whatever reason, Thomas wasn't among them. John chapter 20, beginning in verse 24, says this, Now Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he replied, Unless I see the wounds from the nails in his hands and put my finger into the wounds from the nail and put my hands into his side, I will never believe it. Eight days later, the apostles were again together in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And then I like to envision Jesus walking over to Thomas and looking him in the eye and he says this, put your finger here and examine my hands. Extend your hand and put it into my side. Do not continue in unbelief, but believe. I think Thomas had to be dumbfounded. How could Jesus have known what he had said to the other disciples? Thomas' reply is one of the great confessional statements in all of the New Testament. Verse 28, Thomas replied to him, My Lord and my God. Talk about an aha moment. The difference between seeing and not seeing is the difference between light and dark. It's the difference between belief and unbelief. What then are the consequences of seeing versus not seeing? Are there any ramifications for those who believe versus those who don't? And I think the answer is obvious. And that answer is life, eternal life, found only in the person works and words of Jesus Christ. And I don't think I can put it any simpler than this. Those who see are those who live. And that brings me to the second point, or the second principle that I want us to look at this morning. Christ assures his followers that their relationship results in life. Look at verse 19. Because I live, you will live also. In that phrase, because I live, Jesus is looking beyond the grave, beyond death to life. Again, notice the certainty of the statement, because I live, you will. None of the things leading up to the crucifixion have even begun to happen yet or to take place yet. And Jesus is already talking about life. 
Life not only for him, but for those who trust in him. Back in verse 18, it was, I will not and I will. Here in this verse, it is, you will. Followers of Christ will have life, but that life is available only because Christ lives and he passes that life on to those who trust in him. Look at the last word in the verse. You will live also. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, Paul writes, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. The implication is that Jesus is the first of many to follow who will be raised to life. The resurrection to life by Christ is the foundational hope of Christians today. In fact, the Apostle Paul says that if Christ is not risen, then we are people most to be pitied. The Greek verb for life is the same in both instances, but the force is different. One commentator translates the phrase this way, because I live, because I shall have resurrection life, you too will have unending resurrection life through union in me. Notice that he says, you too will have unending resurrection life. The force of the verb is what Greek grammarians call dorative. It means that it lasts. It goes on and on and on. It means that we will have life on and on and on into the future. It is because we see him. It is because we believe that Christ's death on the cross is sufficient that we have unending life. The Apostle John put it this way again in his first letter, 1 John chapter 5, verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. The phrase, he who has the Son, speaks to the bond that exists between the believer and the beloved, between the saint and the Savior. And that brings me to verse 20 and my third point. Christ assures his followers that their relationship to him is secure because they have a bond with him that cannot be broken. Verse 20 reads, On that day you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. This verse goes hand in hand with what David and Cammie have been teaching on in the book of Ephesians, that we are in him and he is in us. Here we have what many down through the years have called the security of the believer. That security is based on the reality of two different relationships. The first, the relationship between the father and the son, and the second between Christ and those who have placed their faith in him. To properly understand the permanence of the bond between Christ and believer, Jesus first wants us to realize the bond between him and the Father. On that day, the day when he comes to them, they will finally fully understand that Jesus is in the Father and the Father is in him and that the bond between them cannot be broken even by death. Earlier in the same chapter, Jesus said, starting in verse 10, do you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? 
the words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father residing in me performs his miraculous deeds. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. The most miraculous deed of all is the resurrection. A man by the name of R.C. Sproul says that it is Christ's ultimate credential. Jesus is saying that the resurrection demonstrates the unbreakable bond between Father and Son, a bond which even death itself cannot sever. He goes on to say that that is the same bond that exists between the disciples and himself. When as individuals we come to faith in Christ, a bond, a union, is formed with him that is unbreakable. Think of it like this. Think of it like couplers that hold a train together. They are bound one in another. It is that bond that holds the cars together. They are designed to maintain that bond no matter what happens, no matter what the stress or the strain. And now that's somewhat of a crude illustration, and it doesn't do the biblical truth justice. The truth is, is that salvation from beginning to end is a work of Christ in our lives. He draws us to himself. In him we have new life, and he sustains us to the end because he will not let us go. The picture of the car couplers is meant only to illustrate the truth that Jesus is in us and we are in him, a bond which is exponentially greater and stronger, a bond that lasts through all of the ups and downs, the joys and tears and hardships that life can bring our way. It is a bond that exists because we are in him and he dwells in us by his Holy Spirit, sealed for eternity. In that day you will realize that I am in the Father and you are in me and I am in you. The word realize means to gain knowledge. It means to understand something that you didn't previously understand. This, in essence, becomes an aha moment for the disciples. That because of the bond between Christ and believer, it's simply impossible for him to abandon them as orphans. Our relationship in him is eternally secure. These three verses show us that our relationship to Christ is permanent, it is life-giving, and it is secure based on a union with Christ that is unbreakable because we are in him. Not because of what we have done, but rather because what he has done for us at the cross. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray for those people who are here this morning who have never had an aha moment when it comes to Christ. I pray that you would open their eyes, heal their blindness, that they might come to know Christ by faith, and that they might understand what it is to be bound together in him. And Father, for those of us who have already experienced that bond, may we live our lives in obedience to your word as an expression of our love to you, the one who gives us life. Amen. During our response time, I want us to consider the impact 
that being in Christ should have on our lives as individuals. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 5, it says this, but whoever obeys his word, truly in this person, the love of God has been perfected. By this we know that we are in him.